Good morning. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Jane Pauley. And this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's our Oscar issue, an advanced look at Hollywood's big night. Many a movie in contention this year assures us that it's based on a true story. But just how true is that claim? That's a question Martha Teichner will examine in our Sunday Morning cover story. When you hear the words, based on a true story, inspired by actual events, what goes through your mind? Uh, hang on to your hat. <laughs> Four of tonight's eight nominees for Best Picture fall into one of those categories. Ahead this Sunday morning, mining the movies for the meaning of true in a world where studios constantly try to dazzle us with their coming attractions, movie trailers can be big business and sometimes even an art form, as Lee Cowan will show us. They're not always what we come to the movies to see. Now, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, the legend continues. But they can get us back to the movies in a hurry. The all-new... Jaws to see it. The cutting edge of the movie trailer. Later on Sunday morning. Among those waiting for the envelope, please, tonight is a young actress with a distinctive name, which she very patiently helped me learn. I'll sign up for two movies. Really? Yes. Even if the first date is a disaster, I'll give it another chance. Best Actress, tonight's youngest contender. S-A-O-R-I-S-E. Almost. Coming up, Saoirse Ronan. Mo Rocca talks with Robert Osborne about a life in movies. Elizabeth Palmer meets the film buff behind the IMDb movie website. Tavis Smiley weighs in on Hollywood's diversity issues. David Edelstein shares his Oscar picks and more. Ahead, movie trailers coming soon to a TV near you. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Based on a true story, it's a boast that can be a plus for a movie during Oscar season. Whether the claim holds up is quite another matter. Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. We are pleased to announce the film selected as the Best Picture nominees. Of the eight nominees for Best Picture, see if you can guess what four of them have in common. These four, The Revenant, Bridge of Spies. Spotlight. This is the tip line. You think he's got something? I want to keep digging. Spotlight. You want to bet against the banks? And The Big Short. In other words, half the nominated films this year claim to be based on a true story or inspired by true events. Last year's Best Picture nominees, same thing, four out of eight. The year before that, a whopping six out of nine, including 12 Years a Slave, which won. Hollywood tends to trot these stories out right around awards season. But really, how true are they? How true should they be? When you hear the words, based on a true story, inspired by actual events, what goes through your mind? Uh, Hang on to your hat. <laughs> Anne Hornaday is chief film critic for the Washington Post. Generally, if you see based on, you tend to assume that the filmmaker is sending the signal that everything happened. When you see inspired by, you get the signal that some more liberties are going to be taken. What happened was true. It wasn't true, but that's how the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was marketed. More recently, 
2013 Best Picture winner Argo was about the actual rescue of six U.S. diplomats from Iran. You are cleared for takeoff. But the nail-biter scene where the Iranian police are chasing their departing plane didn't happen. Was all this legal? Absolutely not. Some of the things in Wolf of Wall Street, for example, were so over the top and so insane. Had I not had people corroborate them for me, I wouldn't have believed it. Uh, but that absolutely happened. But even so, screenwriter Terrence Winter deviated from finance fraudster Jordan Belfort's memoir, Some. For example, he changed Belfort's unfortunate car from a Mercedes into a Lamborghini. I think I can look at the story and say, right, this is germane to the telling of it. This is in the spirit of what actually happened. And I can mix and match facts. If it's not a documentary and, and none of nothing that I've worked on has ever purported to be, then I have the latitude to say, okay, look, we're, I'm, this is an entertainment. She says, uh, welcome to Afghanistan. Listen to me now. The new Tina Fey movie, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, out this Friday, is based on reporter Kim Barker's experiences in Afghanistan. More or less. Today, Kabul's first licensed female driver, Gulbahar Yousefi, hits the road in the first... That sucks. That sucks for women. Tina Fey is much shorter than I am, obviously. I'm five foot ten. But actually, her name in the movie is uh, Kim Baker, not Kim Barker. In the movie, she is a TV journalist. I am a print journalist. I need a story. I need to get something on the air. Just part of the weirdness of experiencing her life and her book about it. Hollywoodized. My reaction during the entire movie was... Please let it be over. Please let it be over. Please let it be over. Please let it not embarrass me. And then it was like at a certain point I started breathing more. And I felt like, oh, this is, this is okay. This is actually a movie and it's, and it's good. In the end, she felt the liberties taken were okay. It's like these are the things that happen with movies. Um, I don't think it takes away from the fact that like the narrative arc in the movie and the book are pretty much the same. And that's what I cared about. It's, it's not exactly true, but it's truthy. But what if the story being told is history? Think of Oliver Stone's 1991 film, JFK. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia. Still controversial because it explores the conspiracy theory version of the Kennedy assassination. Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? There are many people who saw Oliver Stone's JFK who absolutely believe the version of events that they saw in that film. That's where they get their history. I think that for sophisticated viewers, he makes it very clear that this is an almost visionary interpretation um, of events on his part. But I take your point that that is an inherent danger, but I, I think the responsibility lies with the viewer as well. I but mean, especially at this time, if, if schools aren't teaching history, that's a problem in and of itself, but they should be teaching media literacy at this point. Jesse Owens has a new world record. You want to win a gold medal? Sure. The makers of the newly released biopic, Race. Ready, go! About runner Jesse Owens were given practically no opportunity to fudge the facts. America's fastest sprinter, Jesse Owens at the start. Owens won four gold medals at the 1936 Berlin Olympics as Hitler watched. We reviewed the script page by page, line by line, made a number of adjustments, which they honored. And the reason that was important was so that uh, history wouldn't be rewritten and that the facts be right. Owens' daughters, Marlene Owens Rankin and Gloria Owens Hemphill, insisted on script approval. There was a scene that we thought, mm, no, that really doesn't need to stay in there. And you won't tell me what it is? <laughs> 
it was, um, there was some nudity and, and we just didn't think it was needed, necessary or appropriate. People who make movies exercise artistic license, but this is also, this is our life. <laughs> this is our life. Accuracy also matters to the Los Angeles Press Club, which Thursday handed out its first ever Veritas Award for the best film based on or inspired by real events or people. Veritas Award is Spotlight. The Boston priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. Judged equally on fidelity to its subject matter and artistic excellence, the winner, Spotlight, is about the Boston Globe's investigation of pedophile priests. So, is it an omen? When the envelope is opened tonight, will the winner be the truth? Coming up... Stephen grabbed my hand and he said, Oh, thank you. I love IMDb. We check it on IMDb. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Tomorrow, February 29th, we celebrate that quadrennial anomaly known as Leap Year Day. Blame the Earth's awkwardly paced journey around the sun. It takes roughly 365 and a quarter days to complete the loop. The ancient Roman calendar tried to fix the problem by adding a leap year day every four years. Close, but slightly too often. By 1582, the Roman calendar was 24 days out of sync with the seasons, which is where Pope Gregory XIII comes in. That year, he decreed a new calendar, called the Gregorian, naturally, which eliminated leap year days in any century year not divisible by 400. For example, in 1900, there wasn't a leap year day. In 2000, you may remember, there was. None of which resolves the nagging question. When does a leap year day baby celebrate his or her birth in a non-leap year? On February 28th or March 1st? IMDB the Internet Movie Database. It's the go-to website for movie fans, which recently marked its 25th anniversary. Elizabeth Palmer found its creator. Where else? At the movies. Think back to the fall. It's opening night for a movie called Suffragette. The stars are strutting their stuff on the red carpet. There's Meryl Streep. And here's Gina Davis. But the biggest Hollywood insider here this evening is strolling through the London streets with his wife, completely unrecognized. He's Carl Needham, walking movie encyclopedia and the founder of IMDb. The Internet Movie Database was one of the very first websites and is now one of the most popular. Its focus may be Hollywood, but it was born here in rural England, where Carl Needham no still lives and works, <laughs> really if you can call this work. So uh, this is the home cinema. Can you call up any film yes, so I have, from your library electronically? Yes, so I have 11,000 11, Blu-rays and DVDs, and I can star any of them from just the press of a button from here. His all-time favorite is Hitchcock's Vertigo. When did you see it first? Uh, 22nd of November, 1989. How do you know? Because <laughs> uh, I have a film diary where oh. I recorded it. <laughs> really? Yes. Do you record every yeah, movie I know, you've I ever know. seen? Every, I have the date I've seen every movie I've ever seen since the 1st of January, 1980. Will you so, forgive me if I say that's a bit nerdy? It is a bit nerdy. IMDb started in 1990 when Call, a young computer engineer, posted his film diary on the embryonic internet to share with other movie fans. Very simple. Yes. What did it do? 
Uh, well, it, it had basic information. Uh, you basic could search. Database, yeah, 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 and uh, you could you could search for for movies, TV shows, and people. That was then. This is now. IMDb was bought in 1998 by Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos as a powerful tool to help Amazon expand beyond books and into movies. How much did he pay you? Uh, that's not a number that we've ever disclosed. The home cinema. That's another way of saying a lot. And when he decided to stay on as CEO, Call became a player. In charge of a site that now offers everything from actors' biographies to a place fans can share gotchas. Can I play you something? Like the time-traveling iPhone in True Story. Oh, there's an iPhone, an advanced model iPhone that didn't exist at the time the film was uh, set. Oh, oops. IMDb has a star meter. Fans can click to rate who's hot and who's not. The actor Rob Pattinson got so many clicks. My face. He was invited to audition for the blockbuster vampire movie Twilight, and he landed the hero's role. As if you could outrun me. Has he sent, sent you a thank you note? I've met I've met Rob and we've talked about we've had it we we have smiled about this. <laughs> Even Steven Spielberg uses IMDb as Call discovered when they met at the Oscars. Steven grabbed my hand and he said, "Oh, thank you. I love IMDb. I use it all the time. Oh. I've I've used the app during the ceremony tonight and and it was it was just wonderful." And then and then I got to tell him how how much I I love jaws. And he does really really love jaws. And all movies for that matter. Carl Needham's passion is as pure as ever. Let's go to the first movie you ever saw. Have you got that? I do have that, indeed. And this is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And how old were you? I was five. And they dimmed the lights and up came the film and you were... Yeah, and that I, was, the beginning I, was, of an I was in love with film from that point onwards. Yes, oh. yeah. It's from Earth we go. Fast forward to IMDb's 25th anniversary celebration not long ago, an intimate dinner for his British staff. It's remarkable to have come from something that was just my little online film diary to something that's used by 250 million people around the world every month. So, cheers. <laughs> cheers. Happy 25. And later, a star-studded gala in Hollywood. But when the party's over, you know exactly where a call Needham's heading. Johnny, the doctor's explained to you. I know. I know. I have acrophobia, which gives me vertigo, and I get dizzy. Next, it's in the bag. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now, our second annual look at those Oscar swag bags. By the numbers. The gift bags are put together by one company, Distinctive Assets, a Los Angeles marketing firm. They're being offered to 25 nominees in five categories. Reputedly included are a vaporizer worth $250, slimware plates valued at $30. There's toilet paper priced at $275, something called a vampire breast lift for $1,900, a slew of travel packages, Everything from a three-day, $4,800 stay at the Golden Door Resort and Spa to a 10-day, $55,000 all-expenses-paid trip to Israel. And much more besides. Something you might want to consider is that the estimated value of each bag is said to be some $232,000. Which brings us to one last number of note. Zero. Zero being the connection between gift giver distinctive assets and the Motion Picture Academy. The Academy actually filed suit against distinctive assets, 
accusing the company of falsely using the Academy's trademarks to create an impression of affiliation. Still to come, actress Saoirse Ronan, from Brooklyn to the red carpet. Read the inscription. From my dearest, darling, treasured, cherished Agatha, whom I worship, with respect, adoration, admiration, kisses, gratitude, best wishes, and love, from Z to A. Saoirse Ronan shared a moment with actor Tony Revolori in the 2014 film The Grand Budapest Hotel. Tonight, She's waiting for the envelope, please, at the Oscars, which she traveled to by way of Brooklyn. I'm not Irish. You don't sound Irish. With her Oscar-nominated role in the movie Brooklyn, Saoirse Ronan is making a name for herself, though it can be tough to pronounce and even harder to spell. Hard to spell S A. O R I S E. Almost. It's it's S A O I R S E. So it's an Irish word and it means freedom or liberty. We need Irish girls in Brooklyn. I wish that I could stop feeling that I want to be an Irish girl in Ireland. The nominees are Saoirse Ronan in Brooklyn. At 21, she's the youngest two time Oscar nominee since Angela Lansbury in 1946. Her first when she was just 13 for supporting actress in Atonement. What about you, Bryony? What sins have you committed today? I've done nothing wrong. Marilyn Monroe never had an Oscar nomination. Mia Farrow never had an Oscar nomination. Did Mia Farrow never have an Oscar nomination? Never had an, nope. Really? Um, what are you, chasing Meryl Streep or something? So that, <laughs> Yeah, that's the goal. An awful lot of it is, is luck if, if your film even gets seen. Well, Brooklyn is not a big film. It's no, not a big not action film. It's not a big, no, it's a very... It's very intimate. And, intimate. And none of us expected for it to go down the route that it did. Step over this way, please. Get out of the line. Next. Passport, please. Welcome to the United States, ma'am. Brooklyn is the story of a young woman who leaves her family and friends in Ireland to come to New York for work and finds a new life and love in 1950s America. You like Italian food? Don't know. I've never eaten it. It's the best food in the world. Well, why would I not like it? Do you like yeah. Italian food? I like Italian food. How much practice did it take you to do the... <laughs> oh, my God. I turned up on the day and had read in the script that, you know, oh, she has a bit of difficulty eating the spaghetti. And I thought, OK, I'll act that one then. <laughs> I'm going to say splash anytime I see problems. Good idea. Splash! You just splashed his mother, his father and the walls. Let's go again. Hands down, it's the most difficult thing I've ever done in any film. <laughs> the movie resonates for Saoirse in a deeply personal way as the child of Irish immigrants. They came here to work. They came here to work. There was no work at home. Um, the Bronx was an area that had quite a large Irish population. You are an American citizen? Yep. In fact, Saoirse was born in the Bronx and used to come to this diner with her parents. You uh, uh, haven't been here for a while. No, I haven't been here since I was three, which is nuts. It was so weird when I came in. I remember everything. I remember where we used to sit. I remember what the outside looks like. But the sounds are the same, the ambient the smell, sounds. Everything, mm -hmm. yeah. Even her favorite, grilled cheese. It's good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the family moved back to Ireland when she was three. Her father had become an actor and introduced Saoirse to his agent. I was quite imaginative. Would put on voices, would do different accents. Please. Could you just not do that at breakfast? Yes, okay, whatever you say. Known for her skill with accents, she's gone from an American teenager in The Lovely Bones. That guy looked pretty stupid with black makeup on. Who? The one with two first names. To a teenage German assassin in Hannah. I don't want to hurt anyone anymore. The role opposite Kate Blanchett 
brought her to the attention of theater director Ivo van Hove. Uh, I, I happened to, to get in touch with Kate when she was uh, making that movie, and she said, I'm working now with such a fabulous young actress, you know. I so went to see the movie afterwards, and I was blown away by her performance. If you could back off a little bit, yeah. it would be helpful. And he cast her in the starring role of the Arthur Miller play, The Crucible. I marvel how such a strong man may let such a sickly wife be. You will speak nothing. Of Elizabeth. She is blackening my name in the village. The play is in rehearsal to open next month on Broadway. When they say that this is your first play, really? Yeah. Like? First ever. So I've never, apart from school plays, I've never done anything before. What was your biggest role in school? Um, one year I played the tree. I was the local tree. I played a rock one year, um, which was very new for me. It was a real, it was a bit of a stretch after the tree <laughs> season. Can you do a rock? Can I do, do you Can want me to just do a rock? Just hold on a sec though. <clears throat> You're putting me on the spot here now. You're a professional. I, yeah, I guess. A rock would kind of be like this, I think. And then if a rock, if a rock had eyes, I feel like an idiot doing this. Okay, I I'll come down. Do you want to come down? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think if a rock had eyes, then it would kind of, it would be like that. An Oscar nomination and Broadway debut could make anyone's head spin, but Saoirse stays grounded and keeps Ireland close, speaking with her mother every day. I remember reading that early fame is a particularly challenging thing uh, for young women. I'm not surprised that it affects young women more because there's more pressure. Um, not only, I mean, of course, when it comes to the superficial stuff, the way we look, the way we're all compared to each other, what we wear and how that's compared to what someone else may wear on a red carpet, for example. But even beyond that, I think when it comes to success, it's almost something that you have to be apologetic about. And yet, there she is. As the Crucible's Abigail Williams, Saoirse Ronan graces one of the tallest marquees on Broadway. What did you think of it? Um, it's very weird to have your face plastered all over a theater, but I have to say, even though I do get quite um, shy about that sort of stuff, there is something about seeing your name or your face attached to a Broadway theatre that makes you go, oh wow, this is a bit of a, a bit of a dream. Except that it's real. Next. Now you're talking. Some coming attractions. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now for some coming attractions. Compliments of our Lee Cowan. The great Alfred Hitchcock certainly knew how to make a movie. Here we have a quiet little motel. But he also knew how to sell a movie. This young man, you had to feel sorry for him. After all, being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of, uh, uh, well, let's go in. This was his trailer for Psycho back in 1960. It lasted a remarkable six and a half minutes. The bathroom. But perhaps most remarkable is that in all that time, Hitchcock didn't give away too much. Cleaned all this up now. Big difference. You should have seen the blood. Wonder what he'd think of today's trailers. Hear the music. They are exquisitely edited. Flashy and heart-pounding, but also heartwarming and funny. I should say that we don't like Irish people. Hey, hey. What? We don't. That is a well-known fact. Um, trailers are all sales pitches disguised as entertainment, even art. How do you say no to God? But as alluring as they can be. I'm not going to be able to refinance. On all my loans? What do you mean all your loans? I have five houses and a condo. Movie trailers still suffer from one recurring criticism. 
why do they show everything in the movie trailer? <laughs> Matt Brubaker gets that complaint a lot. Maybe um, elaborate more on uh, the wife's storyline. He works for an entertainment marketing company called Trailer Park, one of dozens of firms that specialize in producing movie trailers, like this one, for the latest Mad Max film. What a lovely day! His job, he says, is to dazzle, to collaborate with both the studios and the filmmakers to showcase the best a film has to offer. And that often means inching within an eyelash of a spoiler. Do you ever worry that sometimes the trailer will be better than the movie itself? No, I mean, that's the goal. <laughs> yeah, really? I mean, if the, tra well, I shouldn't say this to <laughs> filmmakers, but if the trailer is better than, than the movie, I mean, that'll get people to the, at least to the theaters. It used to be we only saw trailers in theaters. Originally, they ran after the feature presentation. That's actually how they got the name trailer. In the silent era, they were filled with silent superlatives, like this one for Ben-Hur. It's practically exhausting to read. But that over-the-top salesmanship stuck. Casablanca, city of hope and despair. When you're advertising the same kind of product again and again and again, I don't think it's unfair to say that formula is going to creep into the equation. Leonard Maltin is a film historian, and he says not everyone loved having to market their films in such a brash way. Give me a mic. Orson Welles, for example, practically made fun of trailers in his For Citizen Kane. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. He did it in an artful and creative way with tongue well in cheek. <laughs> yes. Where he says flat out, this is a piece of ballyhoo. These days, trailers are more than ballyhoo. They're big business. Trailers, they're under such a microscope now. You constantly have to outdo yourself. In fact, they've become their own genre. So much so that trailers even have their own award shows, like this one, appropriately called the Golden Trailer Awards. Few have won as many of them as Mark Woolen. But I see them all, every little shot, frame, moment of dialogue as little puzzle pieces that we're trying to then reassemble into our two-minute puzzle. His process of creating those puzzle pieces is pretty unique. He'll watch an entire film with the sound off, sometimes He'll watch it all backwards. I'm just looking for those moments. What are those key things? What are those head turns, those looks, those little smiles? I'm just looking for fractions of a second that are going to kind of hit me kind of in an emotional level. And those are the moments that I know are my trailer moments. That's what I'm talking about. You're Birdman. He's cut the trailers for the last two best pictures in a row, Birdman and 12 Years a Slave. I was a free man. I'm not a slave. This year, he was hired to make the trailer for the Oscar-nominated The Revenant. I ain't afraid to die anymore. I've done it already. It was really about trying to kind of convey that feeling uh, and that visceral experience of, of the movie. The Revenant is full of grand cinematography, but not a grand amount of dialogue. So, Woolen had to find something else to pace his trailer. That's Leonardo DiCaprio's breath. There is a kind of a constant thread that's kind of uh, carrying you through, which is this breath. He blended Leo's breathing with the sound of drums, and then with the sound of a shovel digging a grave. Dig. Wow. Dig. It all builds, sweeping the would-be moviegoer along with the action. So it's really all those elements kind of coming together um, to mean, kind of try to kind of create this this feeling. Most of us, though, still recall the days of trailers with a booming narrator. Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? 
They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. That's the voice of the late Don LaFontaine. Above Gotham looms its greatest hero. He was featured in more than 5,000 trailers. That deep baritone so recognizable, he was dubbed Thunderthroat. He's the voiceover for a comedian <clears throat> movie trailer. The trailer for Jerry Seinfeld's film Comedian featured another voice of God. In a world where laughter was king. Hal Douglas, who took the opportunity to make a little fun of himself and the genre. On the edge of space. There's no space. A girl. No. Two girls. No. Now, no. more than ever. Stop it. A renegade cop. I hate you. The voice of God narrators are largely gone now. Most modern trailers let the film speak or joke for themselves. Well, at least I won't die alone. just typical. While they may give away too much, and moviegoers may grumble there are a few too many, an argument can be made that trailers are as much a part of the pageantry of film as the Oscars themselves. Chewy, we're home. Coming up, Duck. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. At least one little girl in Maine is enjoying a childhood that's just ducky. Steve Hartman shows us why. A lot of kids go to the park to see ducks. But five-year-old Kylie Brown of Freeport, Maine, takes her duck to see the park. Snowflake comes here to swim around the pond and then returns when called, because Snowflake truly believes that Kylie is his mother. And the duck is not alone in this delusion. I'm his mom. But you're not really his mom. Yep, I'm his mom. How did you first find out? That he was a duck. No, that <laughs> Kylie is unbearably cute. <laughs> and since I never did recover to ask that question again, <laughs> let me just tell you that Kylie first noticed Snowflake's attachment the day the Browns brought her home last summer. Look, 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 he follows her. For whatever reason, the duck imprinted on Kylie and just had to be by her side, no matter what the hour. <laughs> When Snowflake refused to stay in the backyard, Kylie's parents, Ashley and Mike, say they had no choice but to give him a diaper and make him a house duck. He goes everywhere the ducks are allowed and almost everywhere they're not allowed. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a two-year-old or a four-year-old that wouldn't leave home without its blankie. She, yeah, she would not leave home without her duck. And at that point, nothing's negotiable. Snowflake goes to the beach in summer and sledding in winter. He's been to soccer practice, gone on sleepovers. He even went trick-or-treating as Olaf, the snowman from Frozen. And over time, because they both sincerely believe they belong together, Snowflake and Kylie have formed a bond like most of us will never know. It's special, even at five years old, that I know that that's the type of person that she's going to be. She really is going to make a great mom someday. Mostly because <laughs> she already is. You know... Someday he's going to grow up and go to college. What? <laughs> the lack of racial diversity among tonight's Oscar nominees has provoked a lot of controversy. A controversy that's attracted the attention of author and PBS host Tavis Smiley. Since the Academy Award nominations were announced last month, there have been myriad protest hashtags like Oscars So White and, of course, calls for a boycott of tonight's telecast. Now, let me confess right up front here that I do intend to watch tonight for two reasons. Chris Rock, are you kidding me? This is a comedian's dream. The jokes are practically writing themselves. But this year's blackout is no laughing matter. How do we explain that black folk are winning in music but not film? There's been a disruptive technology in music that allows artists to record, promote, and distribute their music. Not so much in film. But I do think that a change is going to come. 
I'm ambivalent about this notion that black folk have once again been victimized by the academy. I mean, sure, I see a whole lot of black writing and directing, producing and acting talent being ignored by Hollywood. But black thespians aren't the only victims. The movie-going public misses out on their artistic gifts, and Hollywood loses out because there's a lot more talent that could be delivering box office as well, given a chance. What's even harder to square, though, is that an industry as progressive as Hollywood doesn't get that excellence in film comes in a variety pack. I mean, let's be honest. The LGBT community has gained more ground in Hollywood over the past decade than black folk have covered in 50 years. Tonight, in fact, we'll see actors who've been nominated for portraying gay characters. Kudos. But why so slow to recognize and revel in the humanity and talent of black actors and actresses. Now that said, I'm not fond of this term snubbed because if you're snubbed when you lose, then what are you when you win? We don't want mediocre to become the new excellence just for the sake of having black Oscar nominees. And so we must accept the fact that art is subjective, but we must also accept that there's right and wrong, not just better or worse. What Hollywood is doing is wrong. We all know it can be better not just on Oscar night, but every day. Next. Olivia de Havilland, Barbara Stanwyck, Betty Davis. You're like the, the actress whisperer. <laughs> Robert Osborne on his life in the movie. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A life in movies is what Robert Osborne has happily led he routinely shares what he's learned with his cable TV audience. And this morning, he shares it with our Moraka. We're very proud to present the one, the only, Gone with the Wind. You should be kissed and often, and by someone who knows how. Oh, and I suppose you think you are the proper person. I might be. He's been ushering audiences into Hollywood's glittering cinematic past for 22 years now. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Has there ever been a movie star like Cary Grant? But Robert Osborne isn't just a lover of old Hollywood. He's been close personal friends to some of its biggest stars. Lana Turner. But darling, can't you see how happy you and I would be together here without him? Lauren Bacall. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and... Betty Davis. Did you ever smoke a cigarette with Betty Davis? Oh, yes, many. You would buy your ticket for your dime or your quarter or whatever, and you'd come into this place of dreams. We met Robert Osborne at the King's Theater in Brooklyn, as splendid today as it was during the Depression, when movies offered escape and solace. And movie palace movie is really palace. the word for it, yeah. yeah. What better place to talk about the passion that has consumed Osborne yeah. all of his life? Also, you went to a movie theater like this beautiful theater we're sitting in right now, sitting in the dark, like Norma Desmond said. There's nothing else. That was something, you know, they were bigger than life. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. Osborne was raised in small-town Colfax, Washington. He caught the movie bug early and by college was obsessed. I actually spent every Saturday in college going through every copy of the New York Times over about a 20-year period and made a list of every movie that played and how long it ran. Oh my God, this is almost Rain Man-like. <laughs> <laughs> they should have locked me up long ago. He nicknamed his meticulously kept record book Blackie. This is kind of your movie Bible. Well, it's, yes, it is. It is. From May 29th, 42 to October 13th, 42, Yankee Doodle Dandy played for 20 weeks. Jimmy Cagney. Osborne knew he wanted to work in movies, but he wasn't sure where he fit in. He moved to Los Angeles and tried acting. Now that's what I call coffee. The one thing that I never liked or wanted to do was play somebody that wore a suit, and had a briefcase. Sorry to interrupt, Mr. Drysdale. Well, you were right, in the pilot of Beverly Hillbilly. Yes, and in a suit. What happened? 
The Clampett estate is being invaded by a band of outlaws. <laughs> the struggling actor was put under contract by none other than Lucille Ball. She really was looking for people who could sing and dance, and I couldn't do either. She just liked me. He was the first uh, young person that I uh, laid eyes on, and boing, I yeah. said, wow, that young man. Lucy was impressed by Osborne's deep well of knowledge about Hollywood's golden era. She set him on a new course. Lucy ultimately encouraged me to be a writer, not an actor. She said, we have enough actors. And so Osborne began chronicling Hollywood and Oscar history. I wrote a book about the Academy Awards, and it became kind of the, you know, a focal point of any kind of discussion I had as a writer. At the same time, he became an entertainment reporter. Now it's time for Who's News with Robert Osborne of The Hollywood Reporter. Good morning, Good Robert. morning. You know Who's News? Simpson and Brookheimer. But Osborne wasn't entirely comfortable in this role. When Hollywood insiders learned that Rock Hudson had contracted AIDS, Osborne, a friend of Hudson's, refused to report it. It's your reporter. You need to tell that story. I said, no, I don't. He's not the president. He's not a government official. It's not a national security he's a, issue. He's an actor. Yeah. He has a right to choreograph his own life. Osborne was interested less in exposing than celebrating his movie heroes, some of whom had become close friends. Olivia de Havilland, Barbara Stanwyck, Betty Davis, you're like the, the actress whisperer. <laughs> I love those people. They were so interesting to be around. These were people that once ruled the world, right. and now they had no power anymore. Nobody cared. But his friendship with Betty Davis got off to a bumpy start. On one of their first meetings, Osborne had just seen 1977's biggest blockbuster. And I said, have you seen the new Star Wars movie? She said, I hate that kind of movie. And I said, oh, but it's really good. Uh, I think you'd really enjoy it. And she turned to me with full volume and said, I told you I hate that kind of a movie. And I said, I can't believe you would say something so stupid as that. Well, her head zipped around and looked at me, and I thought, she may kill me. And then I looked at her, and I knew I had her. And that's what she was waiting for, a challenge. And we were friends from then on. By the time TCM launched in 1994, there was no other contender for the host. Robert Osborne had spent his life rehearsing for this role. I was preparing for my ideal job that didn't exist. His favorite interview? Former movie musical star Betty Hutton. I can sing anything higher than you. No, you can't. Who by the year 2000 had not appeared on camera in almost 20 years. How are you today? I'm scared. But she opened up to Osborne. She was terrified she was going to disappoint people. They wouldn't remember her. Oh, I mean, it's the thing I'm proudest of, I must say, because we have this vulnerable woman who had been such a big star tearing her heart out. My private life has been hell, really hell. But my professional life was so wonderful because the audiences understood I was working from my heart. For Robert Osborne, movies are life, only better. I think we have to have dreams. We need a little Carmen Miranda with all her tutti-frutti hats, and we need some Fred and Ginger dancing. We need Gene Kelly hanging off that lamppost. I'm laughing at clouds. We need to be taken into a fantasy world and not be afraid to go there, occasionally. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Still ahead, if David Edelstein handed out the Oscars... I'd have voted for Idris Elba in Beasts of No Nation, among others. So, what to look for at tonight's Academy Awards? Cue David Edelstein. Well, here we are again. 
But where are we? On the brink of what's going to be a weird Oscar night. <laughs> Welcome. The outrage over the all-white slate of major nominees will be the evening subtext, and probably its regular text, too. Now, I sympathize with the Academy's top brass. They have an African-American president. They gave an honorary award to Spike Lee. They picked Chris Rock to host. It was their mostly white, male, over 50-year-old voters who let them down. That's right, a lot of them look like me. Except I'd have voted to nominate Creed, star Michael B. Jordan, and director Ryan Coogler, instead of just the white guy in that movie, Sylvester Stallone. And I'd have voted for Idris Elba. What are you doing here? In Beasts of No Nation, among others. So, who is in contention? Leo DiCaprio, nominated many times, no wins, always comes back harder. In The Revenant, he hauls his broken body, snuffling and grunting over miles of frozen tundra. Give him his Oscar already. And I hear The Revenant will win too, and many people love it. I found director Alejandro Iñárritu's mix of show-off macho technique and bogus Native American spirituality downright icky. The Big Short, Spotlight, and Room all robbed. See Room, though, if for no other reason than Brie Larson. And there was a backyard, and we had a hammock. We would swing in the hammock. Who's, by the way, a lock for Best Actress. I need to talk to my husband. I need to hold my husband. Alicia Vikander is the supporting actress frontrunner for the transgender weeper, The Danish Girl. I give you, he got guts. Though I'm rooting for Jennifer Jason Lee and her fiendish smile through broken teeth in The Hateful Eight. Finally, I hear Stallone will win for the aged Rocky Balboa in Creed, which is kind of nice. He was nominated for the original Rocky, but though the movie won, he lost Best Actor to Peter Finch for Network. Rocky should win in this arena, too. Making up for past omissions, that's what the Academy does well. Given the omissions this year, they'd better get busy. A little news of our own now. We're pleased to report Charles Osgood had his knee surgery on Wednesday here in New York. He's now out of the hospital and resting at home. Charlie, speedy recovery to you. And next week here on Sunday morning. All remote, stand by, please. We get the news from Holly Hunter. Okay, we're going to George. Say, the Joint Chiefs are meeting. We have George. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.